0: Welcome to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Victoria Gordon. Victoria is a performer and creator based in Los Angeles. She is the recipient of the IFS Film Festival Vanguard Award for breakthrough performance for her work as writer, producer, and star of the indie pilot Behind the Times. Her shows include Victoria Gordon, Live at the Hollywood Fringe, and An Evening with Victoria Gordon at Feinstein's at Vitello's in November of 2019. On March 22nd, her show, Sondheim on Sunday, a 90th birthday salute, will debut in Los Angeles at Rockwell table and stage. We're going to talk today about Stephen Sondheim and James Goldman's 1966 television musical, Evening Primrose. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm super excited to talk about Evening Primrose and we'll get started with our get to know our guest questions. Um, what was your first experience with a musical?
1: Okay. The thing is, I don't even actually remember it because when I was about two years old, Beauty and the Beast was on its first national tour. So my mom took me along with my cousin who was older (laughs) to go see Beauty and the Beast. And Mm -hmm. I always grew up with musicals in my life. My great uncle was a symphony conductor and he used to have a lot of musical composers come through and musical performers come through. My mom's a harpist and she used to play in the pit orchestra for musicals. So we just we it always is. had. Yeah, I know. We always had musical theater in the home. In fact, when XM Radio pre-merger, XM had a Broadway channel with this guy, John von Houston. May he rest in peace. Um, And my mom would have us listen in the car and she would have us. My sister and I would have to identify for each song, the song name, the composer and the show.
0: What is the last great musical you saw and why? That is a really
1: hard question, but I'm going to go with (laughs) Falsettos. Um, Falsettos came through LA last year. I thought I knew the show because I had heard the music so many times and I knew the story, but I didn't. And it really caught me off guard because it's such a moving tale about life and love and relationships, what we do for each other, family. I was still pretty emotional, even though I didn't think I could be surprised. It's one of those things where I think we as theater fans listen to cast albums and read stories and think we know what the show is, but... What made Falsetto so special is that even though I knew it was going to happen, it still struck me in such an emotional way. I think it's a really beautiful show.
0: What older or classic show did you
1: recently see for the first time, and what was your experience with it? This one's kind of interesting because it sort of relates to what we're going to talk about. Um, I actually saw for the first time the TV version of Cinderella with Julie Andrews. I found the DVD, and I watched it, and I grew up listening to that album and watching the brandy version. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's not like we're not talking about, oh, this is a brilliant piece of theater, but, you know, it's just a really enjoyable show. And I think, and this will relate to what we talk about a little bit later, but I think it's really interesting how it's so good for the television medium. I'm sure that when audiences sat in yeah. the 50s, it was like a revelation and it was just enjoyable. I had a really nice time watching a nice vintage piece of theater and television history.
0: Yeah, I grew up with the Leslie Ann Warren version and I thought that yeah I didn't realize there was a Julie Andrews version of it until like I was an adult but I never watched it because just in my head I'd seen it I'd just seen the the Leslie Ann Warren version but I've seen like a lot of high schools do it it's a good show for for high schools to do and stuff but yeah that is interesting how this was just specifically a tv musical
1: yeah
0: Um, what is a musical people might be surprised to find out you love and why would
1: they be surprised? Here's an interesting one. So I was in a production of Grease when I was nine years old and that's when my parents discovered that I could sing. So Grease will always hold a special place in my heart, but I think Mm. a lot of people think of Grease and they're like, oh, it's like this, you know, high schooly kind of musical about this like super perfect girl and this kind of... He doesn't seem particularly bad in most versions I've seen, but it's just like good girl, bad boy, like stereotypical musical. But the thing is, Grease was not that initially. It was really an ensemble piece about working class kids in Chicago. And Sandy wasn't, Mm. you know, shining good girl. And Danny wasn't this like quasi bad boy. They were these like sort of faux gangs. It was pretty much, I mean, I think the original Grease was a revelation when it showed up on Broadway. And I think Bye Bye Birdie falls in a similar trap. And I would love to see more productions match up to what the original was, which was what it was like to be this kind of outcast kid in the 50s. I think I love listening to the older cast albums of Grease for that reason.
0: Yeah. I kind of feel like I went through a phase where I was like against Grease because it was so popular when I was a kid, you know, but now, like rediscovering it and feeling like, yeah, there's a lot of like dark stuff in here. And Mm -hmm. it's like some really interesting character Character work and like, yeah, the whole outsider thing has made me be like, yeah, Grease. I mean, yeah, you have like the Sandy being cool at the end, changing herself. But there's so much else going on that I kind of feel like, eh, you know, that's just something that's there, but it's not the whole story. Right, exactly. Which musical theater writers, either of the past or working today, do you admire most?
1: Well, obviously, Stephen Sondheim. Um, I admire his mm-hmm. creativity. Mm-hmm. I think he's got this ability to explore the human condition in a really interesting way. He's witty. He rhymes well. Um, I also love Cole Porter for the wit. Um, Meredith Wilson mm-hmm. has a place in my heart. His book, but he doesn't know the territory yeah. is required reading for creatives as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm a good old Comden and Green fan. What?
0: is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state
1: you didn't think it was possible to get to? I have to say, I love this question. It really got me thinking. And I'm going to kick it back to the man of the hour and say that I think Mm -hmm. the second act of Follies is a really striking piece of theater where if it's done properly, which it generally is in big production, you get to see four people break down in four very different ways. And I think any of those four roles can be incredibly difficult. But Sally in particular catches my attention because mm-hmm. her breakdown is the subtlest of the four. She is her most put together probably in her entire life. And she is singing the most arranged mm-hmm. song about stalkerish obsession. And I just think the actress playing that part, and we've seen some brilliant ones do it over the years, really has a lot of work in that scene. But when it's done properly, she gets to really play something special. and. A moment that not everyone gets to do in the theater, which is, again, perfection and craziness side by side. It's it's a very beautiful Mm -hmm. moment, although in a terrifying way.
0: I think you're really getting at something when you say when you said um, that it's like probably the most put together she's been (laughs)
1: because
0: she is like in this other like kind of, you know, fantasy, not fantastical uh, state and where she is in the form of a torch song kind of thing so she's she's not quite her usual you know usual self so she is in this like kind of more put together state but like everything is still there underneath and it it all eventually will reveal itself so yeah I agree that song is losing my mind which is the name of the song uh is just struck me I like had to sing it immediately um kind of things cool Let's get to our topic, which is uh, in honor of Sondheim's 90th birthday coming up. Amazing. Um, We're going to be talking about uh, his musical for television, uh, *Evening Primrose*, uh, which maybe not everybody knows, but it's kind of like a cult, uh, a cult favorite, or that you know you can now see. But uh, on YouTube, but for a long time, it was, you know, you had to go to, well, I saw it at, the first time I saw it was at the Museum of Television and Radio, which is now the Paley Center. But at the time, it was called the Museum of Television and Radio. And my mom used to talk about it. She saw it on TV as a kid. And she would say, like, there was this, because I was, I love Sondheim. And she would say, like, oh, there was this Sondheim musical I saw as a kid. It was so creepy I saw it on I don't know if she used the word creepy but I'm paraphrasing but I saw but she couldn't she couldn't you know forget it it was you know that it was very it sticks with you so she would always talk about it and she was like I know it's at that museum when you move to New York you should go watch it so as soon as I I moved to New York which I did for college I went the first time in the first few months I went right to the museum watched it and yeah. wow and would watch it on you know subsequent viewings because at the time it was the only you know place to see it. Whereas now, well, they I think in 2010 they put it out on DVD, and now since DVDs are kind of out, <laughs> now it's just on YouTube. Oh, yeah. um, people, people put it up, yeah. So it's it's gone from something that was incredible incredibly difficult to find to something that's very easily accessible now, which is, which is great. But uh, it's so funny to me that it
1: be, it went through on that journey. Cool. Yeah, no, your story is similar to mine, only mine involves taking my mom to see it. But I first discovered mm-hmm. Evening Primrose through the early 2000s album that was The Frogs and Evening Primrose. Um, mm-hmm. And four songs from Evening Primrose were sung by Neil Patrick Harris and Teresa McCarthy. And I discovered that it was yeah. Haley Center, which we also have one here in Los Angeles. Well, actually, we had one here in Los Angeles in Beverly Hills. When I was in high school, I dragged my friend Chloe, who was a big Sondheim fan, along with me to go see it. And then I took my mom to see it years later. And my mom still complains about what a downer it was because um, it does have a very sad ending. But at the same time, it's an enjoyable 45 minutes if you want to sit down and watch it. It's in black and white. The color print is lost. The original cast was... Um, Anthony Perkins, A.K.A. Norman Bates, as the main guy, and right. the lady was Charmin Carr, A.K.A. Liesel Von Trapp. So you have the two of them falling in yeah. love. Put that image in your head. Um, this musical
0: uh, was written with James Goldman, who he was working on *Follies* at kind of the same time. Although at the time it was titled *The Girls Upstairs*, um, so they were working on that. I think it's been documented that James Goldman needed the money, so right. they they did that, did it, um, and it was part of uh, stage ABC Stage 67, which was a weekly series of original plays and musicals. There are a lot of people who wrote musicals for this plays and musicals for this program. Sheldon Hart, Bach and Harnick uh, did one, which I saw also at the Paley Center. Um, this one just seems to have stuck with people. I don't think anybody tries to watch the other ones, but this one
1: seems to have really, um, like survived in people's minds. I think you said something earlier that kind of hits on that too, which is that it's a, you said creepy, but the word I'm thinking of is haunting. It stays with you once you know about this. Yeah especially if you listen to the music, the last song doesn't give you, it's not like a big finale number that gives you a definitive ending. So I think it's kind of a thing that as people get to know it, you can't just do one thing with it. You can't just like listen to the songs and think, okay, cool, on with my life. Like you gotta then go searching further. It leads you down a rabbit hole. And I think that's why it's endured that. And also the fact that people have really recorded the song. If these people weren't working to keep it alive, I don't know if it would have endured. When I first
0: saw it, um i was like dreaming of like one day like they'll do a stage version even though i you know it's, sondheim has said like he is not interested in a stage version of this it is for television if he did it and it's done like that's it um but then i did see in like 2010 it was some kind of benefit where they did a stage version of it um very bare bones but after seeing that i was kind of like you know what, I. I think I'm good. I don't think I need to see this on the stage anymore. Nothing, nothing, um, um, you know, bad about the people who worked on it, but I just realized then that I was, that it really doesn't translate to the stage yeah. well, unless like a lot we're done with it. It re- I think it relies a lot on the, the, the scenery and the, um,
1: mm-hmm. or the, the,
0: the actual, like we're in the store kind of thing.
1: No, I totally agree with you. There are two things I could see being done with the material if this were of interest to anyone. One would be a higher budget TV version or film version. The other thing I keep thinking about this show is that it might be interesting in an immersive setting, like you're in the department store. I think that would be so cool.
0: Um, I, yeah, I I would totally be on
1: board to see it done that way. Yes, exactly. Let's go do it. Yeah. And make- or the shame is we lost so many department stores about 10 years ago that could have been yeah that's true now you got to go for one of the big box department stores but at the same time it has that vibe of like or you know if someone had the budget to put it into a warehouse kind of like sleep no more or one of those other shows and make it like its own department store I just think there's merit to that because the show itself doesn't move a lot you could very easily do it in a smaller space you're part of the dance you're part of everything i think that could work
0: there is a lot about it that feels a little dated um so it would be a little a little tricky in that way too and especially watching it again this time to prepare for it even more stuff stuck out to me it's like oh wow (laughs) this is um this is a little especially um Charles and Ella's relationship, but I mean, it's kind of part of it, but part of the overall story, but, um, and it is the, the sixties, but it kind of, it is interesting to go back to it. Um, having, you know, always just thought of it as like, that's the love story of the musical. And to kind of see it's that there's more of like a, more of like a Pygmalion, like teacher student thing being set up, um,
1: That's not, like, the best. When I was younger, I think I thought it was a sweet romance for musical. And now as an adult, especially in this day and age, looking at it, I'm like, actually, their relationship's a little creepy. Like, it's not necessarily all sunshine and flowers. There's a little bit of, you know, he's, I mean, he is far more experienced than she is. And he's older, even though he's younger than every other man she's ever met, he is still older than she is. And there's just a little bit a little squick factor. It's not so bad that I can't watch it, but it's like, it would have to right. be in such a way that maybe Charles is like a broke college student or something, you know, something that makes it a little yeah. bit, this guy is taking advantage of this extremely naive, sheltered girl. He's teaching her and she's trying to practice her new knowledge, which honestly, again, if you haven't seen it, it's things like two plus two is four. Like she really has no knowledge. And this girl has been through some trauma mm-hmm. in her life. And I think that gets totally yeah, glossed cool. over because it doesn't fit a larger storyline.
0: Probably we should yeah. go over the story. little no, but yeah, <laughs> the actual story for those who has, have not seen it, I went right into like their relationship without doing that. So let's let's go over the story of the of the show. Um, yeah,
1: why don't you why don't you uh, start? Well, on the most basic level, Evening Primrose" is about a poet named Charles who wants to escape the expensive, unappreciative world and decides to move into a department store because it has everything he could possibly need. But guess what? Charles is not particularly original in this idea, just as he isn't in his poetry, because he moves into a department (laughs) store and finds a world full of people who've been living there for years, and they have this whole, like government and structure and the whole thing is you can't leave once you show up you're stuck because if you try to leave the dark men are going to come now the dark men are kind of this quirky threat but anyway before i get to that there's a girl named ella who was abandoned in the department store when she was six years old her mother went shopping and ella fell asleep and her mother just left without her so she's been there 13 years and she finally Mm -hmm. meets a guy who's relatively close to her age that would be charles because every other man there is really old and they sort of fall in love, which is more of like a Stockholm syndrome kind of situation, and she convinces him to escape, and the dark men do not like the idea of two escaped guests. I'll put it that way.
0: It actually, like, if you think about it, it's basically just, like, generally about, like, these, like, societies of people who kind of drop out of, uh, drop out of the world and want to live on their own, in their own rules, and there definitely are people who who do
1: that they didn't choose the you know i'm gonna go live in the woods good luck to me they were like i want to be comfortable while i'm hiding from the world (laughs) so they live in a department store right
0: and it's interesting like there's a lot i realized this time uh, watching it just like about the whole like art versus capitalism like um thing where a lot of this piece is about money in a weird way i think because first you have Charles, the poet, um, who's trying to get away from life, and we'll talk about his opening song in a bit. But his basic want is he wants to drop out of life, uh, like where you know he has all these like annoying responsibilities, like paying rent and you know uh, annoying neighbors and stuff, and he wants to live well. He thinks on his own, yet he chooses a department store which is, like, full of, like, if you think about when you go into a department store and how you're just surrounded by, like, stuff to buy, and he's choosing to go there for inspiration is, like, such a weird concept. Um, He's going to write and be inspired. He's not going into the woods. He's (laughs) He's going into
1: a department store. The thing is, though, what's kind of interesting is I think, and we'll obviously talk about the music a little bit, too, but I think Charles's first song sets up a very different character than the Charles that we get to know because Charles is kind of like our good guy. He's our everyman. But I think his first song sets him up as kind of like a bratty, entitled guy. And I almost wonder what would have happened if that had been Pursued. Right. Well,
0: yeah, let's talk about the first song then. He, like, calls himself a genius multiple times, He's like, I am so awesome. You know, (laughs) I'm like, he, the lot, he says, I'm a genius. Charles, you are an, uh, you are an unadulterated genius.
2: Are they gone? Am I alone? I'm alone, it's done, they're gone. I'm a genius. Charles, you are an unadulterated genius. You are an indisputably extraordinary. What was that? Excited, mustn't overdo it softly. Tiptoe, you'll get used to it in no time. Look at it. Beautiful. What a place to live. What a place to write. I shall be inspired. I shall turn out elegies and sonnets versus by the time at last. I have a home and nobody will know. No one in the world. Nobody will know I'm here.
1: When you wake <laughs> up with one genius less, if you can find me. Right. I'm... He really thinks yeah, very highly of himself.
0: Yeah. Even though like later he's like, my poems are horrible. Like I couldn't actually write. It is interesting in this song too like there's a lot of like I'm free, I'm free and um, and then he says uh, he's gonna be uh, in this department store with a, a book to read a light a chair, a book, light refreshments, a blazer, maybe a
2: tweed there, all of these products and me. All that I ask is a chair that takes books to read. Life refreshment before I proceed. And a Lord or maybe a tweet The barest essentials a board would need.
0: He's basically looking at this department store as if he's going into the woods to, like, live, like, a bare bones life. But he's not.
1: <laughs> Everything gets to be mine to own. Mine to use. But at nine, master of all
2: I survey, everything gets to be mine to own, mine to use, mine to write all the poems I choose. All alone, only me and my news, and 40 pianos with 10,000 shoes.
0: Free, even though he's trapped. I feel like there's there's so many contradictions in this, in this show that it's just so interesting to to look at them. The whole like art versus capitalism thing being one of them, but there's also inside versus outside, which uh, they do a lot with as well. With just even starting visually, like the scene when if uh, you know you start outside the department store, you see scenes of the life outside, and
1: then and then you go in. There's a lot of back and forth about inside versus outside. And it's less literally like indoors versus outdoors and more the idea of this world of the department store. And the thing that is hard for me to conceptualize, but I get it from having researched it a little bit, is that back in the day, department stores were not just big clothing stores. They were like everything stores. Like they would have... Yeah, yeah, and houseware and like like you could get everything in an apartment store so you're dealing with what in theory is like a small world and it's got all these people in it mm-hmm. but it's also a trap because even though you have everything at your fingertips you also have no freedom
0: when Charles meets Ella of course he's like super taken with her because she's like you know the only young person there and Roscoe has a line because they tell him basically like she is off limits like you do not talk to her and he says that ella is like the people on the outside her eyes her coloring um she's not one of us she's not like us kind of thing so there's this sense that even though ella has been there like most of her life which would mean to me like she would be one of them i mean i think
1: their behavior dictates a lot of that they've kind of othered her they've Turned her less into, like, you would think if someone left a kid in an apartment store, first off, you'd think maybe they'd actually let her go in violation of all of their codes. But that part aside, right, but instead of raising her in a way that makes her feel like she's part of the community, they treat her like their slave. And that alone is what makes her such an other in this world. Oh, and
0: another weird thing, going back to the whole money thing, that is that Pete's when you hear people who are there part of the the group talk about like when they came to the store it seems to be after like a stock market crash like or a panic like mrs monday who's like the the leader of the group who has ella as her maid she says i came here after the panic of 97 meaning 1897 and a lot of people came after 29 stock market crash of 29 um, which like kind of implies that people were so fed up with the world as it was with the stock market, with their, with the way the, the world worked with money wise, that they,
1: that's why they came here. i of read that a little differently. First off, my thought was how old are these people? The 97 one, I'm like, how, like, but that without that, either way, I'm yeah. They all come across as upper class, the way they dress, the way they behave. You think that these people came from some money or they had money and they lost it. And I wonder if I wonder how much it was fear. You know, this happened to me. I'm not Mm -hmm. safe out here. I have to be someplace where I can feel safe. And because these people came from more sophisticated money backgrounds, they only felt safe in a sort of consumer filled environment like a department store.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely how they live their lives in this Mm -hmm. place of like we have to maintain, you know, what
1: we have and be safe. Well, they really are living a very lovely life, aside from the fact that it's overnight in a department store. They pretend to be mannequins during the day. I mean, it's like when you take out all the mitigating factors, it's not a bad life.
0: We hear stories about these other people, like um, Young Phipps is the story we hear about this guy who was one of them who wanted this smoking jacket um, and That he was, I guess, coveting, you know, on the racks and somebody bought it and he like was acting as it it seemed like he was acting as a mannequin or was hiding. But like during the day emerged and like, like grabbed it off the customer. And then that threw everything into chaos for them. And they keep and they keep talking about this story of young Phipps who did this. And notice this and I noticed they say young like he was one of the younger he must have been one of the younger ones that like I guess like he wasn't equipped for this or you know or something but um, he then the, then they call the dark men and he disappeared and became a you know what the dark men do to these people um, spoiler he became a, a dummy a mannequin and um, But I think they say that outright in the story. So but it's I also find it interesting that they they kind of use this story of young Phipps as kind of like a scare tactic to to, you know, warn Charles um, and maybe others that, you know, don't don't like reach for things on the outside, like don't don't you know, bring chaos or like the dark men will get you kind of thing. It, it almost makes me question. I, I know it, I'm sure it's a real story, but it almost feels like they could have made it up as like a story to scare people kind of thing. Like, don't be like young Phipps, you know, I guess that kind of leads into the song I remember, which is like a song of her Ella kind of saying, cause she came when she was six. So she still has these memories of the outside. I mean, as they all do. But for her, like, these memories are so vivid to her. Whereas, like, I'm sure the other ones have, like, willingly forgotten <laughs> forgotten all these things. And maybe that's why she still appears to be so much of the outside because she's holding on to all this stuff because she can – she sings about it in such detail and emotion that, you know, you really feel like, yes, this is the outside.
1: When she also sings about uh, the memories in ways, it's not like she has stories where she's like, I remember doing this very specific thing as a child. It's more like, I remember details. I remember the sky. I remember the clouds, the snow. I remember trees. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Whereas I'm guessing if the others have memories, they're more along the lines of like, I remember the time my mother, you know, took me to the, the Ascot. Mm-hmm. I think her memories are so pure because they're just like the basic memories. Yeah what the world is like i mean it's basically she's
0: remembering stuff that remind her of the outside yeah it's not oh, her, this is not like
1: her mother or no i think she doesn't say mother. well she remembers boys but otherwise it's all natural stuff light and noise and bees and then she's and boys um but for the most part it's natural
0: yeah one thing now just getting into like the form the form of this song that is i i was trying to like look at the form of this because it it always feels like when she's singing i'm like is that it's not like a clear like um rigid a a b a form like with the two verses and then like a bridge and then another a um they're they're very irregular which i think is super interesting and they the first one is i remember sky i was it was blue as ink or at least i think i remember sky And then the next one is, I Remember Snow, soft as feathers, sharp as thumbtacks, coming down like lint, and it made you squint when the wind would blow.
2: I remember sky, it was blue as ink, or at least Sharpest thumbtacks coming down like lint And it made you squint When the wind would blow It's kind
0: of, that's kind of like the second one, I guess. But it's it's not the it's not the same as the first. It's longer I it it, it has this you're you're never like in a a regular form in this song um the beat maybe in the beat in the bridge sections and the B's, which kind of makes sense because she's someone whose
1: edu- formal education ended at age six and yeah this is probably the first time anyone's ever asked her for something like asked her to speak beyond like you know yes mrs monday right and, like i think sh- this is really as coherent as she can be in terms of putting together her thoughts, which she probably hasn't necessarily verbalized ever. Yeah, it, this, yeah this is the
0: first time she said these things out loud, that they've taken on uh, words instead of just the images and the memories. And then there's, of course, the last line of, I remember, which is what really gets you. I would gladly die for a day of sky, which ends up being kind of foreshadowing But and I think she probably knows that that's what it would take, at least until she kind of has that hope
1: with getting escaping with Charles. It's crazy to think that she's been cloistered the way she has for 16 years and hasn't like gone nuts. Like the fact that she's as lucid as she is is somewhat impressive, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think and it seems it seems from the song that part of that is like holding on to these memories and like and like seeing the sky in her mind and and all that and remembering the cold of the snow and you know, all that stuff. Ella and Charles are starting up their, their, uh, uh, I guess courtship slash student teacher relationship slash whatever they, friendship. Um, And they had, this is one of the four songs in the show is the song When, which is this duet between them that takes it's kind of like a little sequence that takes place over a couple of little there's little dialogue in between uh in between it um but it's basically a duet where they never actually talk to each other it's a lot of it's in their head um and uh but it it's kind of just like about them being like when when are we going to be able to talk when how is this going to happen kind of thing
1: yeah and what's so interesting to me about this song aside from the fact that it's very you can feel the sort of rush in the duet in the sense of like they can't nothing that they're thinking or saying they can't let anyone know that this is what's going on it's because their relationship can't be exposed because charles isn't supposed to be talking to ella and that's probably enough to call the dark men the thing i always catch and when i listen to this song it just gives me a little bit of a cringe it's right at the end, Charles realizes, okay, screw it. I'm getting, I'm, I'm not hiding anymore. I'm going to go hang out with her, and we're going to make this happen. And he says, now, Ellen, now, girl, I shall show your, and I know the girl can be used as, like, a hey, girl, how's it going? The way he says it, I'm like, are you looking for a dog? I mean, it's, like, it's it just its so synchronizing, and so, like, it, it's just ironic to me how little like, he's trying to be, I guess, sort of this Casanova who's like gonna rescue this woman he wants, but really, he still sees her as a girl. And that adds to what we discussed earlier about the creepiness of the relationship is that he doesn't necessarily see yeah. her. Yeah. Now, Ella, it's like, it, it really does seem like he's looking for a dog, not a
2: girlfriend. Yeah. Now, Ella, now, girl, I shall show your hands how to touch, eyes how to glow, lips how to kiss. I've so much to show that you will. We'll
0: throw and then, then. i i don't think i caught that the first time because it flies by so fast but you're absolutely right that now girl what <laughs> what is that i think maybe sondheim needed an extra syllable but still
1: in the song she has her moment she goes When will we meet? I long to know. What songs do you like? Where are you from? Straightforward. Then she goes, Charles, am I ugly? Charles, am I dumb? And it's like she does not know what it means to be an attractive woman. Where are
2: you from, Charles? Am I ugly, Charles? Am I dumb, Charles? Do you like me, Charles? Could you love me, Charles? I do
0: love those lines, though, because I feel like it's really like you get you really get inside of her, which, um, you know, most of these lyrics in this song or are um, for her are like, when are, well, when are we going to meet? Uh, I, it's but it's more about him, you know, um, or like questions about him and then but then it gets into these questions about herself and like what is going on in her head which i just i love getting that little glimpse
1: that's the most we see in my opinion of ella's mental state because we hear her memories and we hear her opinion we see her through charles's eyes right. but i think the most we actually get in terms of ella's character development they do find time
0: to be together in this outdoor sports arena or uh, room whatever it is and uh there's like sounds of birds being like pumped in through the speakers in the room to give it like the feel of being outside. She's kind of like, we, you need to get me out of here. That leads into the uh, take me to the world where it's kind of like they're they're singing together now but they're in like such conflict until kind of the end where he she kind of convinces him. In the funniest
1: way in my opinion. She says, Charles, if you love me at all, and somehow that alone, he suddenly is like, okay, guess we're going. See ya. It's very funny to me how she says that.
0: It's true, though. Like, he should be trying to get her out of there. Like, she's clearly being held captive, but but he's, like, too into himself to realize it. Because, well, she wants... Yeah, I mean, the whole song is, like, she wants everything that he has renounced um in like the beginning when he first comes to the store and he so he's, he's like very reluctant to give up what he has gotten uh, by messy. coming here
1: i mean some of her lyrics are so sweet like she says at one point um a world she wants to take me a, a world that smiles with streets instead of aisles Let me see
2: the world with clouds. Take me to the world. Out where I can push through crowds. Take me to the world. A world that smiles with streets instead of aisles. Where I can walk for miles
1: with you just like the sweetest concept but like she just wants she has a very yeah naive view of the world but she just wants to be in a place where she can not I mean she wants out of this commercial uh, land. It's, it's really when you think about it this is the money song of the show if you will this is the song that is the most yeah ta- translatable outside of context that's you know this is the song that I do in my show I have to ask yeah. did you notice that this and too many mornings from Folly's Kind of are the same song.
0: I had not thought of that before. I'm pretty sure, but you're. I feel like you're absolutely right. There's there's a similar, like, um, especially when uh, they come together in too many mornings. Like both of them singing, that kind of that swell there, that build feels very much like this. You almost
1: could, if you had a karaoke track for one, sing the other. Like- right,
0: right. And I, I mean, they must have been working on, at that at the same time. one Another thing I notice, just looking at the lyrics to this, usually when I hear it, I'm not really listening to Ch- Charles's part. And especially mm-hmm. like, because usually I'm familiar with the solo version, which takes that out completely. Right. But if you really look at what he's saying, it's also pretty, like, pretty bad for him to say these things. Well, first he starts with like, this is his position. The world is better here in this in the store I know I've seen them both although I don't know how he like he thought the world would be better with just him alone in the store I don't know why I don't, I don't know if his if his perspective has shifted now that he knows there's like a whole society with rules he has to follow but um and then he says a poet doesn't count for much out there I mean I guess yes okay um, we, then he starts trying to convince her how horrible it is out there. We'd be cold and hungry in the winter, a shabby room with cracked plaster. You couldn't get a job like this. It starts to, it starts to sound pretty bad. Uh, we'd end up hating each other. But I, you know, I don't know if that, if that would really be true. I mean, yes, probably
1: because he's horrible, but he says you couldn't get a job i couldn't hold one so i think that is the one self-aware he has in the entire show where he's like basically just admitting i'm useless and the reason i'm here is because i truly cannot keep a lifestyle outside of this store
0: she's like making it very clear she wants to escape and he's like basically saying oh this is where he has those lines like i know what's best you know i'm older i know what's best and Oh, he just comes off as so bad here. He's like he says, "I love you" in the song, and it's—I feel like it's totally buried. You know, you don't even hear yeah. him say it because um, it's really just not about that at all.
2: The world is better here. I know. I've seen them both. Let me see the world. Oh, it doesn't count for that much out smiles, there. miles take me to the world. We'd be cold and hungry in the winter. Somewhere dark, I can. Dark, shabby room. Four miles pots, take red me to hands. the world. You couldn't get a job. All I couldn't hold one. All around. We'd begin to hate each other. In the ground, We'd have fights. You'd cry. Birds that make couldn't bear it you if you cried. A bird. Let me see the world. I have seen That's the world. Real. show me how it's done. And it's mean and ugly. Teach me how to laugh. We could laugh together here. here. Me to the Stay the here sun. with me. Just hold where we are but we're happy where it be a world stay, stay with me you any other world stay with me take me to a world where i can be alive oh charles what kind of life is this i make the decisions if i say we stay we stay We'll become just like the people here. Cold, spindly things that move at night. Sometimes I think it's happening to us already. I'm older and wiser. I know what's best. Oh, Charles, if you love me at all. I love you more than poetry. We're getting out tonight.
1: And that's when he uh, the fatal flaw of the film. Yeah. He, um basically there are these little sound effect machines in the area they're in and he tries to turn up all the sounds so she can hear what the world's going to sound like when they get outside but unfortunately in the process he also hits a button that leads to the intercom which means that now everyone in the store gets to hear their escape plan. If you just want to see one song on YouTube there are some great reaction shots of the people listening to their conversation. You would think they were having some kind of like scandalous, dirty conversation.
0: So there's like this party. Charles is there's dancing music these old women are playing these recorders which is I don't know I find that really freaky in a way um it's like this recorder duet and they uh, the plan is for after after Charles reads his ode that they're going to escape uh after that and they but they know so they keep like stalling so charles will never read his ode because they've called the dark men and um the dark men are going to come and at this point we know who the dark men are but i don't think we've s- have we talked about the dark men exactly yet
1: the original short story they're relatively straightforwardly introduced as you know the sort of law enforcement of this underground world the department store dwellers and then in the radio version they are very much like the bad guys like I think they describe the in detail the wax and everything and then in our version it's oh like, yeah like quietly creepy it's like you've got these dark men they come and then oh take a look doesn't that mannequin look just like young Phipps oh look he does I wonder how that happened so it's, it's yeah. not, and I think it adds that sort of haunting feeling but the dark men do come yeah
0: well she has yeah well she has a line a little earlier when they're when he Charles asks about the dark men and she says, they are they live at there the people like us, but they live at the mortuary." And he has a line like, "What do they live off of?" And it's very like, "You don't want to know." But they it's like kind of suggesting that they like live off the dead bodies, so they like run at, out. I think they get into like the
1: delivery truck. I do like Mark, we'll go at. one moment in this chase where they're leaving, where Charles grabs from a mannequin like a spear and he throws it in the direction of the uh, and because this is so low budget they couldn't get a reaction shot so you just hear the spear kind of like clomp off to the side and then they run on so i mean it's but they do end up in the delivery truck and then we hear a reprise of take me to the world and then we look at this is a good spoiler alert location yeah. the front window of the store which now has a bride and groom mannequin who look freakishly like ella and charles and so as yeah my yeah. mom will still tell you it's such a downer ending and it's really, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a downer, but at the same time it's haunting. My mom still, I mean, it's been a while since we've seen it and she still will say, Oh God, what a sad ending.
0: But- <laughs> it's also kind of freaky. Like they, cause first, so like first, first you see a shot of the outside kind of like you saw in the beginning like it's yeah. a bustling street people are walking around you think like oh maybe they i mean you see there's kind of a suggestion that they got caught because there's like a shot of the door handle being opened although you don't see anything um uh, but you know you're like oh maybe they got out you know we're seeing the outside world now and then you the first thing you see before you see the mannequins is this couple that looked that look uh, creepily like Ella and Charles, and they're holding hands, looking at the window. So, like a first glance, you could be like, "Is that them um, outside?" But it's then you realize like it's not them, but they're like holding hands the way like Ella and Charles talked about holding hands in the "Take Me to the World" song. You know,
1: there's no escaping but, it. All,
0: yeah, but as much as I w- wish they would have escaped, it kind of works for this little television musical, um, which is kind of like it's just a little story. It's kind of like a little scary story, and uh, I think it works. Which I and I think like if you, it may not work to put that on stage as like a stage musical because it it kind of would lose that it would have to be something more than that's where Sweeney Todd comes in
1: Is right, you know, right. a bigger and a bigger concept and that's where he got to do his like creepy stage version this is the creepy tv version. right right
0: yeah that's true like and that has a lot more hopeful that has a lot more of a hopeful ending whereas like this it just doesn't have it so we're gonna going to move on to the why is this so good section. We're going to be talking about the song Storybook, uh, which is from the musical The Scarlet Pimpernel, but we're going to talk about a specific version of it um, by that Linda Etter has on her uh, CD or record album. Uh, do you want to talk about why you picked the song for why is this
1: so good? Yeah, because I've been nagging myself with that question. When I did my Spotify year in review, this was my most listened to song of 2019. And I love this song. I think it's beautiful, but it never really struck me within the context of the Scarlet Pimpernel or on that album. It was when I found Linda Etter's version that I first got really into it. And I just, it's one mm-hmm. of those earworms that I can't seem to shake. And I think it's a really beautiful song, but I don't know what, yeah, yeah. what yeah. led me to make it my number one song of the year. Uh,
0: <laughs> let's, let's figure out why. So I, I, um, I don't know Scarlet Pimpernel. I never saw it. I know like one or two songs from it just from out mm-hmm. in the world, but not this one. Why do you think maybe this one over the one from the musical?
1: You know, I have to be honest. I think Frank Wildhorn writes his best work when he writes with Linda Etter in mind or when he gives it to her to mm-hmm. interpret. And I think this is one of those cases where she probably, the thing about Linda Etter is I never saw her version of Jacqueline Hyde. I have no idea how she is as an actress, but she is an incredible singer and Mm -hmm. sings his music so beautifully. That's why I think even though they're divorced, they still work well as a couple, as a professional couple. And I just think that this is an example of a song that he maybe thought of her, but you know, she wasn't going to go do that show on Broadway. So he had to find someone else to play the part, but ultimately it came back to being Linda's song. And I think Mm -hmm. That's the thing that makes this version so striking to me, is that her voice just really hits all the beats of it in such a beautiful, natural way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I listened to both versions, and I also found myself more drawn to this Linda Edder's version than the one from the show. It also felt like, I don't know the dramatic context of this song in the show, but it felt like, at least toward the end of that one, things got just felt a little more desperate for some reason I just got that feeling from the the, the vocal performance whereas this one it kind of kept it a lot more or a little more um light um which I felt
1: it, it seemed to work for the song a lot better yeah and I think the orchestration was a little different not like so different that I was like oh my god that's what made it um I do think that Linda's has this sort of with the bells and everything, a really pretty, just pretty version of it, which I think is nice when you do a cover, Mm -hmm. or this isn't a classic, but a cover of a song that's been established, a musical theater song that has a context in a show and you're trying to make it your own show setting. I think the more you can do to be creative with arrangements and interpretation to an extent, I mean, obviously I'm not looking for like a musac version of everything, but I think being a little bit more creative in this, right really separates her version out because it's not just like she did a karaoke from the show it's like no she took a song from a show and turned it into her own song
2: listen to me i have beautiful dreams i can spin you dreams to linger within you close your eyes and we'll rise It's
0: interesting that we go we're going from Sondheim to Frank Wildhorn in this episode. But um I think with Sondheim, he's writing these really like specific theater songs where everything is everything is in the lyrics and the music. Everything is given to you, which is which is great. People like Frank Wildhorn and sometimes Andrew Lloyd Webber, to an extent, they're writing in more in like the pop vein where it's really more up to the singer. To bring a lot more to the the lyric and the song. A lot of times with these songs, it kind of depends on who's singing them to me and what they're how they're interpreting them. When you look at the song and you analyze the song, there's not there's not always that much to it. This song is you a know? great
1: example of that because it's a very you could interpret this song so many different ways. But the idea of right. being like you know looking for a story it kind of goes with evening primers, looking for a storybook ending, a fairy tale ending, that kind of thing. And I right. think that can be applied to so many different settings and situations, and it could be taken in so many different ways that what makes this version kind of special is yeah. even though musically, like, in terms of her interpretation, pretty much follows all the beats that have been laid out by the original cast album. It doesn't, I don't mean mm-hmm. to, to get everything out of this. Not that Sondheim is so site-specific for the most part. I feel like he's got these songs that are very universal that speak to everyone, but I think that's a respect right. of him being a brilliant writer. And a lot of people falling into a lot of songtime conventions would not have that ability.
0: Yeah. And I don't mean to say either that it's a bad thing one way or the other. It's just like a different
1: way of of handling a song as a performer. I think there's a lot, especially when you think back to the days when show tunes were the pop songs. And the mm-hmm. goal of the mm-hmm. composer was to get their, you know, billboard hit. I think that's kind of a convention that you see when you go back to like a Frank Wildhorn or an Andrew Lloyd Weber or their hand I think in a to in a, to an extent Stephen Schwartz is like that too. I think there's merit to both.
0: And Yeah. This song I I has kind of reminded of like uh like Jock Brell or you know, something like that. It yeah. had it was like reminiscent of I don't know if it was like specifically calling to that or not, but it, it just reminded me of that in a way. It's a waltz, you know, kind of thing and, and uh, especially when the French came, comes in at the end there's a lot in this lyric uh, about like the idea of love and love and dreams and all that mm-hmm. uh, the character has a line, lovers whose love used to fill me um, love is the, the one thing I do well, so there is there's character stuff in here I'll see you stories of lovers whose
2: love used to fill me and the lovers who will be for you see love is one thing do
1: well. you could pull that in a few different directions you could make this a song that's kind of about like reflecting on past love you could make this a song that's about not someone who's actually had the experience but someone who is fictionalizing the experience you can really Mm. that a few different ways it's not necessarily a straight up like here's life past like this is the story I'm inventing because she says listen to me I have beautiful dreams I can spin you so the question is Mm. are we talking about someone who's divining a future are we talking about someone who's experienced are we talking about someone who's making something up for a story like you can take that a lot of different and I think that that's kind of a cool entree into this song because it's like how do you, who does the singer in this case want to be? Does she want to be the old wise lady with the background? Does she want to be the, you know, dreamy girl who's like fantasizing? Or does she want to be like the mm-hmm. painter or the sort of like magician, alchemist kind of? I mean, there are so many ways you can take it. And I think Linda Etter tends in this song because she's got the little children's chorus towards being the wise older woman. Not that she was particularly old at the time or mm-hmm. now but older to this group um but I can see the song going in a lot of different directions
0: all right well let's move on to our final section something wonderful where we just talk about something upcoming or current in musical theater that we are excited about or want to give a shout out to
1: well I should start with a little self-promotion here um with my Sondheim on Sunday yeah. 90th birthday salute which we performed at Rockwell Table and Stage in Los Feliz in California um, on March 22nd, which is Sondheim's actual 90th birthday. Um, I'm doing 20 Sondheim songs mm-hmm. from, I want to say, 15, 14 different shows, 15 different shows. So I'm really running the gamut of Sondheim's career. And it's a one-woman show. I do have a guest performer on one song. Um, my friend Carly Bracco will be joining me on Getting Married Today. But otherwise, it's all me with my band. And really, I'm exploring... It is. Yeah, it's going to be a fun show. I'm a Sondheim fan from a very young age, and it's just it's a nice chance to really explore his work through the lens of, A, someone who's a big fan of theater, and, B, looking at how Sondheim sees his own work. I extensively reread his two books, Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat, to get his insights into his songs. But then I also include my own anecdotes about experiences I've had with some of his songs. Like the time I tried to sing, no one is alone and bought a karaoke track. And it turns out at the end, it cuts out where the giant cuts it out in the song. But Sondheim has such a fascinating career and I'm really excited to pursue that on stage and hopefully to bring it to more places outside of, this is the debut of the show in March. So that'll be fun. The other thing I'm really looking forward to, and it's out your way actually, is I am so excited for Hugh Jackman's music, man. Yeah. Like I said at the top, Um, definitely, is, very, yeah. and um, he was a, before I was born, he was a family friend, so I never got to meet him, but I read his book, but he doesn't know the territory, in one day, and I liked it so much, I gave it to my uncle, who read it, all- <laughs> and he liked it so much, he gave it to my mom, who read it over, like, a two-day period, like, we all read it so quickly, it's must-read for creatives, it's how he got the music man from the idea phase, all the way to the final production, and really... More people need to tell those kind of stories because it was not an easy road. He took him, like, nearly 10 years to put it all together. And I'm really excited to see a new approach. I mean, it'll be pretty similar, I'm guessing. But Hugh Jackman as Harold Hill. Yeah. I I think it's going to be a really, really hot ticket. And I'm very much ready to fight for my own chance to go see it.
0: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a question or comment about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest, love this podcast, help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at scene song and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald, and check back here in two weeks for our next episode.